Let me be the first to say to you, Happy Easter. Let's just get that out of the way. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Life's like a vapor. It's Christmas already. Merry Christmas. Grab your Bibles. Go to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. This is where we're going to be for the next four weeks, leading right up to Christmas, which is on a Sunday this year. We will have a Christmas service at 1030. It's a family service, so leave your pajamas on. Come. Your Christmas pajamas, come and join us for a 1030 service. Or don't leave your pajamas on. Put those new Sunday pants on. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, looking at Christmas from Isaiah's writing, 700 years before the first Christmas. You could say Christmas according to Isaiah. This holiday that the world celebrates each year seems to grow and get bigger and bigger worldwide, each year generating more attention, more excitement, more anticipation, and yes, more money from people than any other holiday, again, all throughout the world. It's interesting, I was reading some articles this past week Christmas in 2020, at the height of the pandemic, some retailers were concerned that spending would dip that year during Christmas. (laughs) You giggle, so I heard some of you laugh and chuckle. According to the Retail Federation, National Retail Federation, Americans spent even more that year than they did the year before. Over $750 billion dollars on Christmas gifts and merchandise. I'm not good at math, so this is not completely accurate. You can fact check this with your iPhone, with your calculator, not with your droid phone. Those are inaccurate. Sorry, I'm just kidding. I just offended half the group here, maybe more than half. That's close to $100 for every person alive on the planet. Just to put this one holiday into perspective, nationally and globally, there is something, you don't have to look very far to see something seriously wrong with humanity. Just at Christmas. $100 a person on the whole planet. Current Data says, according to the UN World Food Program, that we would only need $40 billion per year to feed the world's hungry. And if we did that $40 billion a year, not just during a season, we would end world hunger by 2030. Now, if you know Scripture and you know the gospel, you know that that $40 billion would not end world hunger. Why? because of humanity's sin nature. It doesn't take money to save people, to rescue people. We know that God is the only one, through Jesus Christ, who can rescue. But Christmas, Christmas is this one time of the year that generates 
Buku bucks. I've called this for years the Christmas effect. This anticipation, this excitement. You open up the present, it's amazing. And then that feeling just seems to go away over time. Like you, you still may remember what you got when you were a kid. I remember that I got a Red Ryder BB gun. I did not shoot my eye out, but I only had it for about four hours before it got t- taken away. Just like about every gift. Got golf clubs, got golf clubs. I'll never forget, I don't feel the same when I get a new pair, a set of golf clubs, but then it was like amazing. And about four hours later, they were taken away. My brothers and I also got that year, I was probably seven, we got new wooden bunk beds. Well, what do you do with golf clubs inside in the winter in Nebraska when it's 17 below? You play lumberjack and you cut your, you hack your new bunk bed to pieces. The golf clubs got taken away. The Christmas effect wears off. If you don't want the Christmas effect to wear off, last night I was watching TV as Notre Dame was getting pummeled and this advertisement popped up basically saying, do you want Christmas this year to be unforgettable? This is me paraphrasing. It's not exactly what they said, but I'm like, there you go. You want Christmas to be unforgettable this year? Run up your credit card. (laughs) And you'll just keep remembering every month. Earthly possessions dazzle the eyes. Not one of us in here is free from this commercialism, scarcity. I have an iPhone in my back pocket. I'm not going to tell you about my first iPhone line experience. Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes. They delude us into thinking they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. If you just get this next thing. And this holiday leverages this myth And all the time, it is the very source of most of our anxiety. Last year in the Matsky family, it was a milestone. We have a lot of Christmas memories. Most of them are me pranking the kids. But last year, Heidi and I were glowing. It was like a milestone. Milestones are huge for parents, right? There's the milestone of that the kid can sit up by himself in the tub. That's a milestone. The kid doesn't have a dirty diaper anymore, milestone. No more car seats. They all, they were so excited last year to buy gifts for somebody else as opposed to receive gifts. This is a milestone, and it was their money, not mine. They, oh. But the feeling f- was fleeting. The Christmas effect happened, and soon they were asking for gas money. <laughs> Every year, when you stop and think about it, It seems like Christmas drifts culturally, even in the church, farther and farther away from the true meaning and the heart of Christmas. This slow fade and drift. Most people on the planet, in the world, celebrate Christmas and don't even understand what that specific day represents. And sadly, even Christians, people who claim and truly do follow Jesus, fail to grasp the historical significance and the theological significance 
of Christmas that occurred 2,000 years ago. You see, Christmas celebrates a divine event about a divine person, the birth of Jesus. And as we open up this series and we prepare for the birth, they're celebrating the birth of Jesus, it is my desire, and not even because of Christmas, it is my daily and weekly desire, it is my calling, my passion, not in my humanity, no, in the spirit moving and calling me to pastoral ministry, it is my desire that your faith, each one of you, whether you are a first timer today or you've been here a long time, whether I know you well or I've barely met you, it is my strongest desire, if you are here at Sun River, that your faith in Jesus is real, not superficial, not fleeting, that you become, what I've said many, many times, a creature of God's word. That you become a person of truth. That what God says in his word, parents, families, kids, grandparents, you read God's word and you go, that is God's moral standard and I surrender to it. That's my deepest desire. Not so that you earn your way to heaven. You can't but because you have accepted the gift of God's salvation and it has transformed your life. I don't want you, and I pray every week, that you and I would not be duped by the world and the schemes, that culture does not define you, that your experience does not define you, God's word defines you. His gospel redefines you. This is only done when you read scripture. When your faith is tested. You see, you were born with, the, with your faith bent to yourself, your interests and your desires. You have to be reborn. You have to be made new, regenerate. Regenerated is the theological term in scripture. This is when your love for God is made real. It's my desire that Psalm 139 is your prayer as it is my prayer. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Test me. Know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting do you want it? Do you desire it? Will you live for the truth of God's love? Let me say it this way during this time of the year. You were created for a Hallmark movie. Now, I know, you know, that I know that oftentimes I rip on Hallmark movies. Last year, I watched a whole Hallmark movie that got through the whole thing. It was a milestone. It was a good one, too. I'm now tempted to watch more of them. But you and I, we were, there's something in us. We want that perfect, 
relationship that, you know, just seems to bend and turn and then everything, it's the same storyline, same, we, we want that. You know what we do? We want the Hallmark Church. Do you know what happens when we don't get the Hallmark life and the Hallmark Church? We blame. We shift, we move, we retreat. You know, when, when our perfect view that we were created for doesn't work out. Do you know why it never works out? The perfect family, the perfect relationship, the perfect church, sin nature. Something has to be transformed on the inside of us. But in all honesty, as much as I rip on Hallmark, there's some truth there. We were created for this perfect little utopia. It's wired inside of us. Sin. Sin gets in the way. Our, our culture, our evangelical culture, our churches, we don't want to talk about sin. Today, we pastors feel this cultural pressure to give a message that'll just hallmark everyone. And I'd like to do that. If I stop reading the Bible, I will. I'll give hallmark sermons. I'll begin to seek to make your faith Feel good and be easy and appetizing, comfortable, man-centered. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and I partially agree with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pillar of the faith, died for his faith in a Nazi concentration camp. He said, salvation is free. Discipleship will cost you your life. I only partially agree because salvation wasn't free. It cost Jesus his life on the cross and Bonhoeffer would agree with that. Read his book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's basically what he says. We've made grace cheap and we've given in in the evangelical community to preach a cultural Christianity of cheap grace. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church membership. Preaching communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without true discipleship. It's grace without the cross It's grace without the birth of Jesus. It's grace without Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So this Christmas season, I want you to grasp the historical weight and the theological depth and significance that occurred the first Christmas 2,000 years ago in the book of Isaiah as well as the Gospels, is where we are going to look to feel this historical and theological weight. The book of Isaiah, it's filled with the prophecies about this miraculous birth. And prophecies, not predictions, promises of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. What many have called from the book of Isaiah, the cradle and the cross. And we're going to see this. At the cradle, we see that Jesus is with us 
at the cross, we see that he is for us. Christmas is the promise. Easter is the proof, as one unknown author said. So grab your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 7. Let me just give a little introduction before we go to Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. The prophet Isaiah served during a very difficult time for Israel. He served under four different kings. The enemies of Israel, Assyria, were attacking and killing God's people. Fear had gripped them. Isaiah, in this book, through the inspiration of God, declares God's word to the people. He dares to believe that something better was coming. That God would rescue. In chapter 7, we are introduced to a king named Ahaz. He's on the throne. Ahaz is not a good dude. He's not a good king. He has deliberately disobeyed God. He disobeys because he does not believe in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is disobedient, and as a result, his kingdom has come under attack from all four sides. And so in verse 9, Isaiah points out and says, if you are not firm in faith, If you don't trust God, you won't be firm at all in anything. This is kind of Hebrew slang for Isaiah saying, if there is no belief, you will not find relief. This is a biblical truth still alive and well today. If you don't stand firm in your faith and your trust and your belief in God, when you're being pressed in from all four corners of life, when your faith is being tested, if you don't stand firm on the promises of God despite the waves, despite the fear, despite the doubt, and we all experience and have it, there will be no relief. It is in the storm that your despair is tested And your belief is solidified. Follow with me, Isaiah 7, as we read verses 10 through 14. And at the end of the sermon, we are going to be doing public reading of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke. But listen and follow along God's word in the book of Isaiah. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, this is a word for hell, and as high as heaven. The prophet Isaiah says to this king who doesn't believe, look, you need to believe. Ask God for a sign. He's going to give you a sign. He's going to prove that he will save and rescue you. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it's important for me to point out, he has no fear of God. 
So, so when you and I have this mindset, I'm not going to test God because, you know, Matthew 4 breaks that down. Don't put the Lord your God. This isn't what's going on here. This isn't a positive thing. It's a negative thing. Ahaz is basically saying, no, I'm not going to ask this figment of your imagination. I am God. I am king. I trust in myself. I trust in my flesh. I'm fine. I don't need help. We are all born with that nature in us. It's not something you develop. It's something that parents have to discipline out of their kids. No parent goes, you know, you just, you need to be mean and rude unless they're playing a sport. This is the conflict in the West. Zach, you need to share and be nice. Kill him. Take him to football. Take him out. Wait, I thought I was supposed to be nice. That's why when Zach was scored on for the first time in flag football, he went up to the kid that juked him and scored him and said, high five. Good job, man. Where you go? Someday I'm going to get a touchdown. And I'm on the sidelines saying, Zach, no. And Heidi's like, Andy, stop it. It's confusing. Ahab is saying, Ahaz is saying, no, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. Verse 13, and so Isaiah said to him, hear then, O house of David, it's too little for you to weary men that you Weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Have you ever wanted a sign from God? Lord, just, just give me a sign. Is, is she the one? Shooting star, yeah. No, that was a shooting star that faded. That was a no. You didn't, you ever think this? God, should I go to this college? Should I do, how great would it be if, if we just had clear signs from God? We do. All around us. But wired inside of us is this Ahaz nature. I want you to notice the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. This sign is not single. It's to all. It's not just to Ahaz. This is a prophetic word from Isaiah. Luke 2.10, which we will read the, the portion of Luke at the end of the service. The angels say, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. It doesn't matter how long you've been going to church or how religious you are or aren't. The sign at Christmas, the message of Christmas is for all people, everyone. Again, in in verse 10, he was asked for a sign to help him believe. He said no. In verse 14, he ref- or in verse 12, he refuses. This ignites the prophet Isaiah to scold Ahaz. Verse 14, we come to maybe one of the most remarkable prophetic passages in the Old Testament. It's an outstanding verse in the Bible. And 
In the Hebrew language, scholars have been wrestling over this passage and debating it. When Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you an oath, a sign, the Hebrew word oath, a signal, a distinguishing mark, a mark that you will remember, a miraculous sign. It's a miracle. This sign from God basically is told in three parts. We're going to look at the first two this morning and the third one next week. God himself is going to give you a distinguishing mark that you will remember. Isaiah says, behold, the word henna, hene. This word is an interjection, a word in speaking or writing that is thrown between two other words that are connected in the same construction. It's to express emotion and passion. He says, behold, look, look, and he gets your attention. There's emotion, but he's trying to get Ahaz's attention. Sorry if I woke you up and you were sleeping. (laughs) God is about to say something He's about to do something. Behold, open your eyes. Look. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Inconceivable. (laughs) It's the first word that comes to mind if you've seen The Princess Bride. When you hear that, that's... Not logical. It's theological. Most doctrines in Scripture are not logical. This one is at the front of the line. It wasn't logical then. It's not logical now. The doctrine of the virgin birth has been mocked by many outside of the church as proof that Christians are foolish. But even in the first and second century and today, there are some inside the church. Pastors or former pastors or leaders who speak against the virgin birth, because it's not logical, because people won't believe stupid things. I beg to differ. (laughs) There are two basic arguments against that have crept into the church, not just on, on the outside, but have crept into the church and have attacked this miracle birth I want to talk about these two things, and I want to break down and explain why this theological, historical fact is so important for your faith. First, argument against the virgin birth is that the prophet Isaiah speaks of a young woman 
not a virgin. The word used is Alma, not Bethula. Now, I want you to know, before I I break down the difference between these two words, Isaiah uses the word Alma, which is translated young woman. However, when you do a deep dive into those who say and land on this, most of them who say, yep, Isaiah doesn't use the specific word virgin birth, he uses young woman, those that even land there still believe in the virgin birth. That fact is never presented in the argument. They'll say, well, scholars believe that the word here is Alma. They're right. means young woman. They're right. But those same scholars, most of them still believe it's the virgin birth. Alma, that the word Isaiah uses, is not the technical term for virgin. That's Bethula. Alma has a wider semantic range than Bethula. However, there is no clear reference in the Old Testament where Alma does not mean virgin. The word Alma occurs nine times in the Old Testament. And whenever the context makes its meaning clear, the word always refers to virgin. Remember in hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, you've got to use scripture to interpret scripture. Otherwise, you're going to have heresy. This is a big encroachment in the church that has caused a lot of heresy. More importantly, when you look at the interpretation, this is new to me within the last month. The Septuagint, Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, translates Alma with the Greek word parthenos. This is the same word, parthenos, that the translators use in Luke and Matthew's gospel where they quote Isaiah 7, 14. And everyone agrees that parthenos means virgin. The Jewish translators of the Septuagint would not have used a clear Greek word for virgin if they understood Isaiah 7, 14, to refer to young woman. Abner Chow is the one I learned this from. He wrote the book, The Hermeneutics of Biblical Writers, basically breaking down and learning how to interpret Scripture from the prophets' hermeneutic and the apostles' hermeneutic. They used methods to interpret Scripture, just like we do today. The second objection, which is a lot more popular than looking at the Hebrew words, is because of pagan mythology. It doesn't take long, Google, YouTube, social media, to see these arguments that Christians stole this virgin birth concept from pagan mythology. Mithraeanism, which is the predominant Mythology of the Roman culture in the first, second, third, fourth century, they had a virgin birth. I also want to say late first century, second, third, fourth century. I'll explain in a second. Christianity has its virgin birth. They're all just fables. Even Star Wars has a virgin birth. 
And when you look at this argument, you go, well, okay, this, at first glance, this could seem plausible. However, this superhuman, born of a virgin, able to do miracles, to save people, resurrected from the dead, is not found in any mythology pre the rise of Christianity. This is an important fact in the apologetic of this argument. Also, it would have been unthinkable for a Jewish sect, remember, Christianity is initiated from Judaism. It would be unthinkable in the first century culture to try and win new converts by adding pagan elements to the gospel story. To mix bits of paganism for Jewish Christians in the first century would have been anathema, a curse. If they had done that, Christianity would not have advanced across the world to the ends of the earth. There are supposed virgin birth counterparts, but none of them when you read, I'm going to give you just a quick glaze over. You go study this for yourself. I encourage you. Search the scriptures and read history. You will see you will see by God's spirit, truth revealed. Alexander the Great, they said, was born of a virgin. When you look at it, his number one autobiographer made no mention of virgin birth. It's his urban legend. And the story began to circulate after the rise of Christianity. Alexander's parents had already been married when he was conceived. Mithra, which was late first century, has a popular parallel. But he was born of a rock when you read the myth, not a virgin. It got morphed over time. Buddha, Buddha's a classic one. His mother dreamed that Buddha entered her from the form of a white elephant. But this story doesn't appear until five centuries after Buddha's death. And she, again, was already married. These so-called comparisons don't hold up. Why does this matter? What's the point of all of this? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Several years ago, a former or so-called pastor or spiritual leader in the Midwest began to teach a different gospel. He began, because this is how it works. This is how heresy creeps into the church. Early off, when a few of us started reading his books and even would go watch him live, we're like, man, there was a little check, but it was so exciting. And there was so, but over the course of time, we all stepped back and went, oh no, this 
This guy, Rob Bell, he's beginning to go. Now we're, getting, oh, we're seeing more. He's a universalist. There is no hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Even Hitler. He began to teach these things. But he had such a spiritual Christian following that it began to take seed in the church. Listen to what he said. He said, he argued, what's the big deal if we were to discover that the virgin birth was not true and that Jesus' earthly father was actually named Larry? He went on to suggest that none of these things would be catastrophic to the Christian faith. Oh, man. He said, Jesus would still be the best possible way to live. If these things aren't true, Jesus is not the best possible way to live. Jesus is one of many possible ways to live. He's, if this is true, if this virgin birth and everything else that's a miracle isn't true, Christianity falls apart. Here's what I want you to know. This is what Isaiah points out. And then we're going to read the Gospel of Luke and what he says about the virgin birth. And I want Isaiah's prophecy, which is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus and written about in Matthew and Mark and the Gospels and Luke. We're going to read this. I want this to fill in the blanks. I want this to deepen your faith. Here's three crucial facts. And Isaiah, he spells these out for us. We see them clearer looking back. First, the virgin birth has been essential to Christianity from the beginning of Christianity. Now, I know that sounds like a weak argument. But we have to care about Orthodox Christianity. We have to care about history. I know the church has gotten things wrong, even from the beginning. That's why Paul wrote half of the books, the New Testament. But if Christians from all bands and all places have professed belief in the virgin birth for two millennia, maybe we should slow down to discount how important this doctrine is. Now, that's not my only point. That's just the beginning. If we stop there, that's not enough. That's not enough. I don't necessarily recommend you reading this book, but it is fantastic if you want to really get depth on this argument that closes the book on it. In his impressive study of the virgin birth, J. Grisham Machan concluded, and after this book was written in the 19th century, really, nobody's been able to refute with evidence, theological or historical. He said there can be no doubt that at the close of the second century, the virgin birth of Christ was regarded as an absolutely essential part of Christian belief by the Christian church in all parts of the world. 
And he breaks this down. I'm not going to go into depth. It takes a lot of pride to think, especially in our day and age today, more than ever, that an essential article of the faith that was set in stone, promised and fulfilled 2,000 years ago, is set aside, could be set aside and not damage the faith. The virgin birth is essential for Christianity at the very beginning. If it was a farce, it wouldn't have spread. Second, the gospel writers, the historians that wrote about this, and there are outsiders of the Bible that wrote about it, Tacitus and Josephus, but the gospel writers clearly believed Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. Mary understood the miraculous nature of the conception. She asked, how could this be since I am a virgin? She's not talking to her parents. It's not the same. Trying to explain, well, no, I've not been with a man. Now she's talking to an angel of God in the first century. Fear of the Lord came over her. We're going to read that account in just a few minutes. The Gospels do not present the virgin birth as a prehistoric myth or a pagan copycat, but as a, listen, as one commentator put it, an orderly account of actual history from eyewitnesses. If the virgin birth is false, the historical reliability of the Gospels is seriously undermined. But third, and this is probably the most significant for you and I as believers in Jesus. Third, the virgin birth demonstrates that Jesus is truly fully human and fully God. Fully human and completely divine. 100% man, 100% God. Our feeble minds can't even begin to understand this theological truth. This is the point that the Heidelberg Catechism makes when it asks question number 35. How does the holy conception and the birth of Christ benefit you? Answer, he is our mediator With his innocence and his perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight our sin. You see, the virgin birth is necessary both in his human nature and his divine nature to be the propitiation, the atonement, the ransom for our sin. Isaiah said, the virgin... The virgin birth is essential because it means Jesus did not inherit the curse of depravity passed down through Abraham's seed. The virgin will give birth, will conceive. This, this plays into the divinity that Jesus possessed. Jesus was made like us in every way except sin wasn't transferred from Adam's seed to Jesus. 
This is a crucial theological truth in Christian faith. Every human father produces a son or daughter with his or her sin nature. This is the curse of the fall. Through one man, sin enters the world, and through another man, Jesus, it is atoned for. If Joseph was the real father of Jesus, Jesus would not have been spotless. He would have not had He would have not been innocent. He would have not been perfectly holy. He would not have been the unblemished lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. This is no ordinary pregnancy. This is no ordinary birth. This stands out as a miraculous sign. A virgin give birth. A virgin will bear a son. This speaks to his humanity. Will bear a son. Baby Jesus in a manger. How many of you already have your nativity up? We had the nativity that the kids could play with. They always wanted to play with baby Jesus. Right? Apparently, baby Jesus was always lost or tossed somewhere. You never could find, where's baby Jesus? Who had him? The dog's got, baby Jesus, get over here. You see, the virgin birth is a key element for our salvation. If you don't believe that a baby was born in Bethlehem from a virgin, then you won't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and paid the price for your sin. See, these two go hand in hand. Ahaz wouldn't believe in God. Without the virgin birth, you and I will never believe in God. We'll never be able to allow God to transform us on the inside out so that even when the outside isn't a Hallmark movie, the inside is. There's peace and hope and real joy that this world and this culture and the enemy and your sin nature can't rob you from. James Montgomery Boyce said this, The doctrine of the virgin birth is not neglected today because it has been disproved. Quite the opposite is the cause or the case. It is disregarded out of simple unbelief. We believe that God's word is perfect that it has authority in our lives, that it is accurate, that it has authority on how we live our lives, that his word transforms our hearts and minds. Luke, the writer of the gospel of Luke, was a Greek He has been declared a careful historian. 
he was extraordinarily accurate. There's details in Luke that are very specific. They align with the other gospels, but he gives details. He was into the specifics. Luke is a reliable source when it comes to the truth about who Jesus is. I would like to invite you to stand during this Christmas season. Would you surrender your life? Would you believe and trust fully the truth of who Jesus was? He was the unblemished lamb who came to take your place on the cross. Jesus started his ministry. He said, repent and believe. Kingdom of God is here. Don't move through another Christmas season or any Christmas season with unbelief or false belief. Luke 1, 26 to 28. These are the very words of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God gave to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her.